Rob Zombie directing is kind of a villain in honor of Die Antwoord, <laughs> Die Antwoord in Chappie. Okay, we gotta do that again. <clears throat> I think it's Die Antwoord. Die Antwoord. Oh. In Chappie. Okay, that's all bit German. It's well, Afrikaans. Oh well, the Antwerp. It's at least D, right? Yeah, the Antwerp. I don't know. You're an American. You get to butcher words however you want. Yes, yeah, people prepared. certainly don't care about that. Rob Zombie directing is a kind of villain in honor of Die Antwerp in Choppy. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> just it's all definitely of Definitely Choppy. I know that. Much. In honor of Die Antwerp in Choppy. All right. <clears throat> For the third time. Rob Zombie directing is kind of a villain. In honor of Die Antwerp and Chappie, what other musicians would you like to see play music? Oh, God, guys. <laughs> Rob Zombie directing is kind of a villain. In honor of Die Antwerp and Chappie, what other musicians do you want to see play movie villains? I am Katie Rich, and I think Taylor Swift has a mean girl inside her that is dying to get out. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. I want Katy Perry to be the villain in the new Bill and Ted movie because I like the idea that the guys never wrote the world-changing song and society was like, fuck it, firework is good enough. And I'm David Ehrlich, and even though she will never act in a feature film again, I am going to go with Bjork, obviously. <laughs> Surprise Bjork obviously hasn't been more lightning round answers from you. I mean, she's the answer to pretty much any question you can think of, so I can trot her out there in the future. That's true. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 61 for Tuesday, March 3rd, 2015. It is still the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. This week we're down in Matt Patches. He is uh, off swimming in the Pacific Ocean somewhere, and I'm not at all jealous. Don't ask me about it. Uh, but uh, we have, you know, three of us. And we also have a new review, which I, I think more than makes up for the lack of patches. Uh, David, what's our review all about? Like there's anything to make up for. Uh, uh, yes, it's by Sean Hillary, who says, very kindly... Best film podcast I've listened to. Uh, I've listened to a fair number of film podcasts, and once I discovered this one, I knew I had finally found the one for me. A show that will talk about both big-budget blockbusters and small-scale indies with thought-provoking analysis, exuberant rambling, and, of course, some enjoyable derision. I wait eagerly every week for the new episodes to drop and devour them as soon as I can. I love you guys, and I love this show. P.S. I would also like to thank David... For bringing Letterboxd to my attention. It is a site I now use every day and I can't live without. Well, Sean, we love you too. Wow, that is Thanks. that is a great review. I don't know if we've ever topped that one. Yeah, Thanks, more, more like those. Yeah. Uh, and do, uh, do check out Letterboxd if you have a compulsion as myself and Sean do to uh, you know keep a log of everything that you see. Uh, it's a great social networking site for that. Yeah, news you can use. Technically, I have to introduce this segment, but I'm really just teeing it up because David went to a porn film festival over the weekend, and I need to hear about it. Take it away, David. Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, well, I got earlier this week, I got an email from Pornhub.com, which is strange because usually you go to them. They're not not really the types to... They don't really need to seek out customers. They probably are doing plenty well on their own. Yeah, they're doing okay. So, uh, although I still don't understand the legality of how that entire Porn 2.0 
world works. Maybe one of our listeners can explain it. Um, but uh, anyway, so I got an email saying, can you go? And I was like, I, I, I have just been in the spirit the last two years or so of just saying yes to pretty much any professional opportunity, schedule permitting. Um, that, that sounds at least a little bit interesting to me. And this definitely fit the bill. Uh, and I asked one outlet if I could do it. And then I got word from on high that they refused to, they had some problem running this kind of content and another outlet that was just like, yeah, sure. So, uh, so where can we see your write-ups of this? Uh, I'm going to write about it for a little white lies. I I have to, I have to fumble around with the copy and see if I can get something interesting out of it. But anyway, um, this was for the first annual, (laughs) it's very presumptuous, the first annual New York Mm. City porn film festival which is not to be confused with the Cinekink Festival, which is happening at the same time, and which I know nothing about. Which is also in New York City? Yeah. Wow, what a weekend. I know. But <laughs> uh, I... So I, I went on the website for this porn festival, and because uh, the Pornhub Association had me thinking that it was one thing, which was going to be like a lot of people that you would be scared to be in the same room with, uh, <laughs> sitting around and like watching porn and uh, masturbating under their pants. Uh, and, and you I, were like, yes, I will go I to this. Like, Please. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I looked at the lineup of films, and it was clear immediately that that was not going to be the case. These are uh, mo- most of the films, uh, the programming seemed to skew towards the experimental, um, very queer friendly, um, very art oriented. Um, one by Miley Cyrus. One, no, the one by Miley Cyrus, I believe, was rejected. I oh, thought it was really? the Bushwick Porn Festival. Well, this this yeah. was in Bushwick. There is okay. no Bushwick Porn Film Festival. This, this not yet. Uh, right. So, well, this <laughs> was for all intents and purposes that I went. So, this was held in a a warehouse, more or less, in Bushwick. Which, if you haven't been to Bushwick, it's like it's just a very I don't know. It's being gentrified pretty quickly. It's a very warehousey so, area. It's a very warehousey area. Um, and uh, as I got there, there were protesters outside who were protesting uh, oh i have a little pamphlet here the uh porn is real and really must be ended if women are to be free except for as one woman very helpfully pointed out to them uh, as she was leaving uh they were protesting gay porn at the time <laughs> which there was no, there were no women to be found <laughs> wow. so they, were, they were a bit misguided way but, to uh, not read the schedule protesting yeah. <laughs> Um, and so there's a police presence and I was like, oh my God, am I going to get like egged walking into this thing? Uh, but so I went in and I egged by feminists. Egged, no, they were not. They were just a lot of like old people. Oh, I thought see, that would be like the name of a movie. No, this was a very, I mean, I don't really know how it would be the most helpful way to just talk about it, uh, in the segment, but it was, uh, it felt to me like a very feminist minded thing. I mean, I think almost indisputably given one of the events, but I was there for, day two like of the three-day thing and like on friday night there was uh they screened like the tequila sex tape which is called backdoored and squirting um and that's the kind of thing wait that is that supposed to be a play on words or just straight no up i think no, that's, that's just, just a description of what's gonna go very down. descriptive all right <laughs> um and they screened uh, some other things but you know that that's something that you could probably find just just on a porn site um and saturday's lineup 
started with, and there were other events on Friday as well, but Saturday's lineup started with a screening of James Franco's Interior Leather Bar, which uh, was made the festival runs a few years ago and sort of imagines what the cut footage from William Friedkin's Cruising would be like. Um, and that's what the people were there protesting uh, on this day. And they were not the Westboro Baptist Church people. They were different people. Uh, but then the first real program that was sort of new to me that I saw, and this is, it was sort of, uh, well, it, it, it's like in a room. It's it's sort of an art space, but they had a big screen and like all they're just benches. It's not tiered or anything. And it was filled with very, very attractive young people for the most part. These were not the, it, it did not, uh, ha- I should say, look like a Comic-Con or something like mm-hmm. that. It was, um, these were very young, uh, diverse crowds, a lot of uh, trans people, a lot of, um, people that were sort of dressed up in, in uh, that weren't necessarily trans, but were just sort of dressed up in uh, like loud the, outfits. The, the sex positive community. It was a very, very sex positive community. Absolutely. Um, and so the, I saw a bunch of experimental films. The one that I found most tweetable was called Cowabunga My Ass uh, <laughs> and was like three or four minutes long and featured four people of indeterminate gender um, sitting around, it dressed up as Ninja Turtles, lying around in a circle, around a pizza, and simulating blowjobs in between, like layered to noise music, and then cut with political slogans. They would like they would say things like um, like assassinations do not equal freedom and things like that. Uh, it was Australian, which I learned on the website, but it, I, I would have guessed Russian, <laughs> uh, and that got laughter and a lot of applause. There was. Um, one called Fisting, which was about fisting. Uh, <laughs> and what I found really cinematically interesting about it was that it's one shot and it's so close on a uh, person's rectum that you can't tell the, the gender of the person. Um, and a lot of it was sort of all these movies were very gender fluid and sexually flawed. Uh, a lot of fluids as well, but there was, uh, and and the whole thing was just somebody's lubed hand slowly penetrating this asshole, uh, and the sound effects were remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that. There were some interesting animated bits. Um, there was a talk by Barbara Hammer, who is a pioneer of queer cinema. Uh, she was born in 1939. She's my dad's age. She's 75 now. Um, and she spoke for an hour with another artist and they uh, showed some of her films. She has sort of this, this structural film, structuralist film from the 70s uh, that shows like the actual film footage. And she has this thing which was a little bit beyond the pale for me about uh, how um, – how film strips as rectangular were somehow oppressively male and she wanted to shoot everything on circular formats and project them on sort of via circular projectors that would sort of uh, play <laughs> the image around a, a room. Um, and, and she, she did a, uh, she showed a film that was a three way where they cut out the male um, and that played very interestingly. And there was a belligerently drunk, woman there who I believe was a porn star because she was very she looked the part and was very friendly with the person who was covering from AVN and she was screaming uh, at the screen and eventually they had to kick her out and she came back and started screaming again in the next program wow. uh, I ate a cupcake that looked like a vagina um, what else happened <laughs> there, was, uh, there were cop, 
cops everywhere, but they were not like there to police the event. They were just like it was it was bizarre. Um. Okay. So, question about the overall value of something yeah. like this. So, like. Like you were saying, porn is everywhere. It's incredibly accessible. Like to the idea of going somewhere to watch porn is pointless in this day and age. But it does. It sounds like it was really different. And I wonder if like the artiness of it made it interesting. Like, is it any more interesting than you know going to see uh, uh, Blue is the Warmest Color at the New York Film Festival? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot more interesting than that. Especially because not that I needed this to put Blue is the Warmest Color in perspective, but. Uh, it's really upsetting just to see that people get so flustered over something like Blue is the Warmest Color, which for me, the only thing that really registered was was the performative element of it and the fact that there was a straight filmmaker and uh, the fact that they had to have molds of the actress's vaginas made and like all, all of these things that sort of separated from reality when, when, as you said, porn is so readily available. Uh, that's really the only thing that's interesting to me about really any of Blue is the Warmest Color. But I, I, um, I use that mostly just as a here is a art film sure, with a lot of sex in there. Sure. But uh, but you know uh, this lineup, which which was a lot of th- pretty much everything on it is is not available um, on YouTube or Vimeo that I was able to find. And uh, these are very diverse works from all over the world, and and they're very sex positive, And I think seeing them with a group of people in a community. These are not the kind of things that I think I can, I can only speak for myself as a, as a pretty vanilla uh, heterosexual cisgender male, but this is not the kind of shit that you would masturbate to. I mean, like this, these were, these were art projects. Um, and, uh, and I think there was just this awareness of, of human sexuality and, and uh, being Frank with it, which makes me remember one of the shorts, Frank and Beans, in which a man, a naked man tied to a leash wearing a pig mask is beaten by somebody. Uh, he's beaten with, with pork. Wow. Uh, <laughs> mm, <laughs> I see uh, where that, what that means. <laughs> so I, I do think that this stuff is very valuable outside of an academic environment, which is um, the whole thing had sort of an academic slant to it, but um, it was very Did accessible. it feel like an academic crowd or did it feel like fun? It felt like, a, I would say, a healthy cross-section between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something uh, – the, the venue made it feel – and some of the this films, which were all shown in very low resolution, uh, added this element of seediness to it But uh, that I think that a lot of these films don't warrant. But I think it's really important to have these films out there and – for exactly, you know, w- with so many people coming at it the way those protesters did, to have more of an active dialogue about human sexuality and, and its t- representations, I think is very important. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to spend my entire weekend there, uh, and I regret going by myself because it seemed like a very social thing. Um, but, uh, but your girlfriend didn't want to join you on this No, I, I didn't realize I had a plus one until I got there. Oh. Um, but... Uh, I did not invite my girlfriend, but she was very supportive. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting. And if there's a second annual one, uh, I would encourage other people to go. I've always been curious about um, Hump, the uh, amateur porn festival they have in Seattle that was at the center of Hump Day, the Lynn Shelton movie. Mm-hmm. I think that would probably be really different from this um, because that's all, like, things that are filmed and then, like, destroyed. Like, they never make it on the Internet in any form. But it does seem like a similar kind of, like, let's all get in a room and, like, see – what we can do with this sexuality that is so lacking in, in basically all mainstream films because of the taboos around it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting contrast to Fifty Shades of Grey as well. Um, oh, which is yeah. Still sort of in the zeitgeist, kind of. Good timing on their part for doing this right after yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> if this were one weekend earlier, they really could have coincided, but maybe the whole audience is there already. Uh, Everyone but, yeah. was seeing Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Dave, you had n- no, no questions? Oh, I, I mean, I got... I got my my start reviewing porn films for the internet. True, so I forgot about that. I'm happy to see that it's become at least partially about having fun in the art because my dictum was always people are not watching this for the lighting, talk <laughs> about the sex so people know what they're jacking off to. Yeah, but that's it. Like the woman who um, Barbara Hammer gave this talk was saying that the film festival was titled as sort of a misnomer that it really should be the post porn film festival because none of these movies could function. Uh, none of them had a utility. None of them were designed for masturbation. They were all obviously right. art projects. So. But like when I was doing that, like going to editorial meetings with the other dudes who had, you know, different beats from me and getting my DVDs and whatnot, we'd get to talking and definitely got like invited to like underground fetishist things and just didn't want to go because it seemed like such an underground community that I'm happy that there's a sex positive mid ground that, you know, at least is getting the kind of attention that someone's emailing David Ehrlich. So that's, you know, that's a step in the right direction. If you're emailing David, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. Send David to more porn things. week was like most weeks in movie news and that a lot of reboots and sequels were announced but for some reason to me it felt like it was more than usual or maybe i was just annoyed by them more than usual so i wanted to give us all a chance at some point some reboot or sequel is going to drive you crazy so what recently announced one are you going to veto and why david you can start yeah for me it's uh, unequivocally spider-man uh, I find I know I. You're saying that just to troll Dave, right? No, I, I don't want to because I loved uh, Spider-Man Two. It's probably still my favorite superhero movie, um, and I just I, I I am ignorant as to what is interesting about this character beyond what Sam Raimi was able to show. Uh, I found the two that they made recently to be abysmal. Um, I, I'm just so bored of this whole thing, but it's really, what really is challenging to me about it is, is obviously the speed at which they're rebooting him. It's like his third reboot in as many years. And, uh, um, it, it really is just such a transparent, uh, damnation of what's happening in movie culture with superheroes and everything else right now. So death to Spider-Man, please. Yikes. Dave. Rebuttal. Uh, well, you don't have to talk about Spider-Man. Actually, just pick your own thing. Yeah, that, I, I feel like there are lots start. of pla- there are lots of places online, including in this podcast feed, to hear me talk about Spider-Man. But <laughs> we got a picture from the Gem and the Holograms live-action movie, which is of course based on the now Hasbro-owned cartoon series uh, about a t- pop band, '80s girls-based pop band that has the techno sure. element. It's not really important. Do they solve crimes too? Uh, maybe, maybe that's it. Doesn't ever, didn't all the teams in the 80s solve crimes? Yeah, I don't remember. Anyway, the important thing is that it looked like it was going to be like this semi-crowd, like, based movie that was going to, like, maybe give 
like gem fans who really do exist because I've met several of them since this movie's been in development like something that they wanted but like they released the first fo- official photo today and it just looks like they'd learned nothing from Josie and the Pussycats way back when and we're just gonna do all that like glitz and glamour and crap story over again granted I'm just judging from a photo but considering <laughs> it's like a photo that is coming from a movie adapted from a cartoon basically specifically to make money at this point I think I'm okay vetoing it. Um, my choice is Blade Runner 2, which I had been aware of. I, I was looking back and found a lot of Cinema Blend articles I wrote about this, but it always seemed like one of those things that was never going to happen, which is how I felt about Prometheus, so it proves what I know about things that will never happen. Uh, but Harrison Ford agreed to be in it this week, which I just find profoundly depressing because the guy is going to get dragged back into reprising all of his famous characters at some point. Ruining, and, you know, into ruining all his old characters, potentially. Are, I mean... I'm assuming that Han Solo stands a chance in Star Wars 7. I mean, we could talk about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or not. Um, I mean, aside from the fact that Blade Runner 2 has absolutely no need to exist, I feel like the fact that Harrison Ford is getting involved kind of highlights the money-grubbing what-the-hell-ness of it, and I'm, uh, I'm pretty depressed by it. Yeah, and it validates, like, three of the cuts of the movie. One of, one of yeah. the least interesting men to ever step in front of a movie camera. Harrison Ford? Yeah, he's up there with Michael Keaton. They're just so boring to watch. There's just nothing, nothing interesting about him. Han Solo sucks. Indiana Jones is okay. Okay, okay. Blade Blade Runner is a masterpiece because he plays a fucking robot. So okay, okay. Or is I agree with he? I agree does with all he? that. Han Solo is great because he sucks in this crazy face fantasy movie where Mark Hamill's doing that performance, and uh, him showing up in Apocalypse Now is actually the best Harrison Ford performance. Oh, he's great. In he's just rock faced and sweaty, and that's all he needs yeah. to be. Rock faced and let sweaty. let basic bitches be basic. You know, it's a boring man. <laughs> all right, please veto all of these. Burn down the movies. This week marks a re-release of the movie Grey Gardens. It's been recently restored by the people at the Criterion Collection. They're all very excited about it. And uh, it gave me a chance to see the movie for the first time. It is a documentary. It's a 1975 documentary directed by the Maisels Brothers and uh, has kind of become a part of camp culture in particular. I think I had never seen the movie, but I was aware of Little Edie and Big Edie and the headscarves and the dancing around and wearing, you know, living in this crumbling mansion. It's kind of become shorthand for... Crazy cat ladies and what will happen to all of us if we don't uh, get our acts together. Um, And I was really thrilled with the chance to see it and kind of amazed at, even though I had all of the camp pop culture filter through it to see it, how heartbreaking it wound up being and how affected I was emotionally by what was happening in the movie. And, I mean, it, it existed at a time in 1975 where culture was really different for a lot of different reasons. And primarily because these people never would have really been discovered or filmed had not you know, had the Maisels not kind of stepped in. They were originally making a documentary about, I think, Jackie Kennedy. She was their cousin. And right. they were making a movie about the Bouviers and then <coughs> wound up focusing on um, the two Edies. Um, and they had, you know, they had a camera. They had access. They had all these things that didn't exist in, to the extent that they do now. And now crazy people who hole up in their houses are the focus of Hoarders, which is on every week. And the ability to kind of see people the likes of which you have no concept of in your daily life 
happens all the time. It's the backbone of reality television and kind of the backbone of just YouTube. And, you know, we get glimpses into people's day-to-day lives all the time, an extent to which was in no way possible in 1975. And I think Great Gardens is interesting because these two women are characters. And it's not just, they're just not average hoarders. They are fascinating in and of themselves. But I wonder if, and I can't think of a good recent example of something like this, a, a current documentary, like a theatrical documentary just about um, people like that. Can you uh, think of something good Dave, offhand? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I think I have my eye on something. I didn't see it. David, did you see Finders Keepers at Sundance? I did not. But I, I did sound very interesting to me. I heard about it. If Finders Keepers is the story of a, a man who uh, it gets, uh, I think, through some sort of, uh, like, I don't know, you buy an estate sale or something, gets a barbecue, and inside the barbecue he finds, like, a severed leg, and it's the story of that person finding the person who the leg belongs to. Whoa. So I think like there's still stuff like out here, but Grey Gardens was definitely the first and definitely the most impactful, I think, because it was pre, like you're saying, Duck Dynasty, Honey Boo Boo things, or this, it could, it could sort of shock us to see yeah, um, Recluse. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Maisels had made a number of verite films uh, that I think are more interesting in some respects, things like Salesman, uh, but... Yeah, I think I think this did pioneer. This did really tap into something um, that has obviously informed a lot of our current culture. Yeah, I mean, David, you also saw it in in full for the first time recently, and did mm. it strike? I mean, did you think about modern ver- like what a modern version of this might look at might look like the way that I did, or did did it get your attention for a different way? Yeah, I mean, well, I I, I thought more about how it made modern versions of this that we see possible. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that I, I didn't necessarily think about what it would look like if we made it today. I think that there is still uh, a smaller, uh, you know, unfortunately smaller market for verite filmmaking where something like this could have been made possible. And uh, there is a certain timelessness of uh, these two women sort of living off the grid. Um, but think, I mean, I, I thought about. I think there's like these characters that sort of float in and out of their lives, and I think there was less of a desire back then, and this was sort of palpable watching it, to share everything. Like, I think that now, if this gardening kid who came in, um, who was sort of the handyman around the property, and he would be taking pictures, he'd be talking about it on Facebook, somebody would hear about it. Oh, Onassis is. Yeah, it would be be a very different story, and I think. you wouldn't have had it, have it to be this sort of cordoned off from the world as we know it. Uh, Although you today. talk about the lack of desire to share your life. What's interesting that is more like today is the way that Little Lady is kind of using it as her chance to be a star. Like she is completely playing to the camera all of the time in a way that a lot of modern reality stars do. I mean, she's kind of getting it before the genre even exists. Sure, but she's also a lunatic. Yes, yeah. and well, so are many people who are on right. reality television. I, that, that's, why it's, yeah, it's, that's why it's so but, great is the, the slow realization that that's like, that's why the, the like movie dramatization that was done in 2009 didn't really work for me is because it made text all like the subtext of like the sadness and the tragedy of the past life where like really if these people like weren't associated with the, you know the Onassis Kennedys then we would have we would have never looked in on like this personal tragedy and it might have been like completely different for everybody involved yeah yeah i i don't know i i think part of what makes the movie so interesting is that it's not as clear-cut as people would 
rush to make mm-hmm. it today. I think, you know, obviously what Katie said is, is right on about um, how Little Edie is very similar to she she maintains a mindset that you could find on any reality show these days. Um, however, I think she is also mentally ill in some respects, or oh, as uh, ill. right in in a way legitimate. And um, uh, her relationship with her mother is fascinating, but it's colored by a sort of psychological understanding, um, or at least curiosity that we have now that we didn't necessarily back in the seventies. Um, I think this movie, if made now, would be received very differently. Wait, what's the psychological understanding? I, I just no, at least a curiosity that we would we would worry more for these women that we would think uh, about their health a little bit more and about what was happening here rather than sort of uh, at the same time we gawk at things so quickly now. But I think that I don't know. There's just there's I just I, I it's hard to say and it's sort of silly to. To go because we wouldn't we we don't really have any way of knowing but um, I do think that in some way this movie which sort of exists out of time is also inextricable from the time which it was made. Hmm. I I could agree with that in the sense that at none of that because it's such it still feels like a verite documentary whereas what non scripted television is now is sort of like finding the little Edies and letting them manufacture your moments instead of just sort of like the environment or the, cause you know, like reality TV channels or even some documentaries these days just don't have the, the, the luxury of time. They, you know, they don't get to be Leviathan and strap 30 GoPros to every part of a ship, you know, for yeah. a while. Right. Um, they just kind of, you know, stumble across something and try to make make a make a good show of what they find it's just amazing that these women uh, i don't know they hit they hit the perfect balance between something i could never be and something that i could easily be if life <laughs> picked me in the wrong way which yeah. i think is like the power of it being real and being verite you yeah kinda, you come you come to that conclusion yourself like i just came to that point and the veritiness of it is powerful, I think, especially if we're used to reality television tropes because you know that it's not being manufactured the way that at this point we all, you know, we watch any kind of reality show and we get the producer's influence behind the story that we're seeing. And there's well, none of that in Great Well, one of the things that I find most interesting about the movie is the sort of burgeoning relationship between Little Edie and, uh, I can't remember, either Albert or David Maisel. I think it's David. Yeah, and uh, the fact that... She is in some way not just putting on a show for the camera, but for his camera um, yeah. and is, is interested in him. And uh, the way that the Maisels incorporate that without violating the precepts of their filmmaking is very is very interesting. Uh, but they're fascinating women. And I think so much of the movie is comes down to that. I really can't speak to the uh, to the reception. I mean, this movie has taken on a life of its own because of how it was embraced by uh, the queer community by there's a fashion influence and of course that is this really interesting wrinkle on Edie's story little Edie's story and how um, she did end up sort of being this icon mm-hmm. um, in a roundabout way but it's, it's, it's hard for me to engage with it as much as I it, it seems like the culture is engaged with it as a whole you think because maybe the culture has engaged with it already at this point like you're kind of coming to it late because I, well, felt, I felt a little bit of that when I was watching it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's so many classic movies that I watch for the first time now. And, and of course, I know they've been thoroughly vetted and canonized and everything else. But I, I don't feel like, like a ship has sailed necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, it, it felt like I, 
I think there's a sense of anybody watching it, you're supposed to sort of feel on the outside, that they live in this sort of impenetrable bubble. But I, I did, uh, as somebody who was deeply moved by salesmen, um, did find myself sort of left cold by this. Dave, as someone who knows more about reality tele- television than any of us, if, and I don't know how much you can even talk about the extent to which you know about reality television. I mean, and do you feel... Unless I incorporate anybody's legal status, I think I could tell you everything I know. Well, is there, I mean, is anything this unvarnished and honest about what it's portraying going to be told on television? Like, do, is, is there room for anything like this in the reality TV landscape? Yeah, I think you happen across people or concepts that strike like lightning. The problem with, like, the difference between something like this and trying to replicate it in, like, reality TV is reality TV is about tuning in for a consistent level of drama every week. So either it's a different hoarder or your housewives are getting in a similar fight because Mm -hmm. it has to happen. Uh, But occasionally you get things like I'm a big fan of reminding people that CBS's Kid Nation existed where they took a whole bunch of kids and put them in a ghost town away from their parents like ages like 6 to 13 and basically made them compete on Survivor and like Mm -hmm. prizes would be like being able to call home to your parents and just like seeing genuine tears and stuff like they wrote laws to make sure that never that show never happened again. But you you find those things every once in a while Uh, that I guess. Uh, like anybody who walked into the Grey Gardens situation in the current day would immediately recognize Edie playing for the camera and probably manipulate that just by the nature of what it is. But I do think like these these things exist and these character portrayals exist. Um, they're just not necessarily going to be on the things that we would deem popular because they're not easy to be replicatable and they're like really a good documentary uh, like narrative story about a single person should end uh somewhere and uh yeah and the television format is not made for it yeah and that's not that's not going to work out but i mean like there's i'm sure there's a ton of great documentary work that's doing this because now we have like more access to it like every once in a while you know like i guess last year i ran across a Vimeo documentary about two uh, like nine-year-old black kids who are in a metal band in brooklyn and they're gonna oh yeah they're gonna get their own tv show this year uh, yeah, I read about attention. them in the New York Times. Yeah, and then every once in a while, a short-form documentary will pop up that you know, like, won't be on an Oscar list or something, just because somebody was in the right place at the right time and met an interesting person. So I think there's hope because of the diversification of it. But like, if we're gonna get like long-form verite documentaries shot on film, those are gonna be really specialized and probably not about people. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, future. even you were talking about how you spent the weekend watching Citizen Four. Like, that is a documentary that couldn't have existed pre-digital age for a lot of reasons, but also that Laura Poitras just was able to bring a camera into the circumstances that she went into and have it be that intimate in a way that the Maisels never could have dreamed of just because of the size of the camera and the practicality of it. So Yeah, or then, like, to when I first saw Grey Gardens, it was part of, like, a queer cinema uh, documentary retrospective in film school, and we saw, it, like, the day after we saw Paris is Burning, which has just recently gone up on Netflix, which is about voguing. And that's another one where it's like this community just sort of accepted this unseen documentary filmmaker and you get to see like a weird part of New York that I never got to see. And so it's like those things are just going to be so much of their time. Um, Now I would say that because we have reality TV shows and the internet and we're interacting in these ways, like 
do- truly powerful documentaries aren't going to look like this anymore. It's hard to do a, like a mood-filled thing. It requires a bunch of talent as a documentary filmmaker when really all that makes a good documentary is a good subject and a lot of work. Man, watching Paris is Running might be what I do as soon as this podcast is over. I did not know it was on Netflix. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. I saw that was up there the other day. That's exciting. Uh, so wait, so wait, you say Grey Gardens is also on Netflix or it's on YouTube or it's, no, it's on Hulu I, well, somewhere? Well, I mean, I searched just, I was going to look at some clips to refresh my memory and I just searched YouTube, but I'm looking at the HD 1080p Criterion full Grey Gardens on YouTube, but it's not by like a person. It's just, it's a dude yeah. uploaded it. So well, I would it's say also coming to pay for it. It's also coming to theaters, uh, and I really enjoyed watching it in the theater, especially because that did remind me that it's not reality TV. It is uh, filmmaking and was released theatrically and kind of came before an era of all of that. So yeah, either way, they're, they're cleaning it up. Yeah, would... yeah, they're cleaning it up and um, kind of a- adhering to the filmness of it. Um, and also, if you haven't seen Grey Gardens like I had and just kind of knew the uh, pop culture elements of it, it is – even more interesting than pop culture had suggested to me. So I really highly recommend seeing it in, in full. It's adorable. Well, and sad. That's what I say. Adorable is not. It's adorable. Heartbreaking sad. was where I landed at the end of it. But, uh, I mean, if I could keep that many animals in a giant house, <laughs> I, would, I would have to find an upside to it. I would no, I mean, one cat discuss. pooping behind her painting. That's a highlight. Wait, that doesn't happen to you with your uh, giant oil painting of yourself? Uh, well, it would if I had a cat. <laughs> well, we'll get you there. Someone go poop behind David's painting. <laughs> no, seeing it after I've been kind of housebound and sick for a while, I was just like, okay, let's just take care of ourselves and not. You took off your he- your your headscarf and you're like, oh no! It's like, oh god, what have I become? Come, came home and talked to the cat for a while. It's been it's been it's been a good time having a house to myself. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will not be back this week with a review. We're going to take the end of this week off. Uh, You can all let us know what you think of Chappie, though. Uh, We'll be back next week, though. Fully staffed. Everyone will be in one place, and we will uh, have more episodes for you. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. Oh, I will take Patches' spot, uh, but my name is Dave Gonzalez. Spell that first part, D-A-7-E. I write at Forbes.com, Latino-Review.com, and I'm now the entertainment editor at uh, Geek.com. So go find me there. Uh, you can find all of us together on our website, FightingInTheWarRoom.com. We have all our back episodes, some episodes of some podcasts about like Game of Thrones and comic books, a long essay on Lost. Uh, a whole bunch of our short films that we did. Really, go check out FightingTheWorm.com and subscribe to us all the time. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner and at Time Out US Film. Uh, And you can find all of us together on Facebook, which is a really good place to yell at us about the movies that we don't want to have rebooted and talk to us about what was the other thing porn. about oh right you, you went to a porn festival yeah i want to want to hear about um if anybody knows why these porn sites can take the proprietary content that people make and just have people upload them and put them on their site and make a shit ton of money i've never really understood how that works but maybe somebody can help me all right lots of things to learn 
Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. You can also find the entire podcast on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, which is another place you can yell at us and teach us about how porn works. And also answer this week's lightning round question, which won't be on the review episode. But you know what? Just answer it for us anyway. What was it, Dave? In honor of that band in Chappie that I've butchered their name several times, (laughs) what other musicians do you want to see play movie villains? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Thank you.